Airlines Confidential with Ben Valdanza and Chris Chimes is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney, whose GTF engines are redefining aviation. Learn more at pwgtf.com. Aerodata, the leading edge in flight performance data. Visit aerodata.co. Aerodata is a Garmin company. Sidley Austin, the destination law firm for leading airlines and aviation companies. Visit sidley.com aviation. And Seabury Securities, global reach, global scale. SeaburySecurities.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at AirlinesConfidential.com. Welcome to Airlines Confidential. Ben Baldanza here. Hope our listeners in the U.S. had a very good Thanksgiving and glad to see everyone is out of their food coma by now and ready to get caught up on the airline news. And Chris Chimes here as well. Ben, I know you traveled over the holiday. Uh, what did you see out there? Well, we took a easy round trip from Washington down to Fort Myers and back. The flights were on time. They were very, very full. The airports were very, very full. But I have to say, Chris, that there was a very positive I would say almost festive sort of atmosphere everywhere we were. Even though it was crowded, even though the security lines were long, even though the last people on the plane didn't have a place to put their bags in the overhead bin, everything that happens when flights are so full, um, there were no sort of anxious or yelling situations, no fights. Everybody just sort of played by the rules. So I know two flights aren't the whole industry, but I got lucky, I guess, and the two flights I took did quite well. Yeah, I uh, traveled Tuesday from Miami to Dallas. It was uneventful. It was crowded, like you said. And then I took my daughter to the airport at DFW Wednesday morning, and we were expecting kind of a bad scene. And it was, again... Busy and bustling, but um, nothing major to report as far as delays or crowds or lines. So hopefully our listeners experience something similar to that. Well, I certainly hope so. And I know there was a lot of travel this Thanksgiving. So as the week wraps up, we're going to have to see sort of what the stats really look like, Chris. Well, that's a good segue to some airline news discussion. We'll talk a little bit more about uh, the operation over the past week. And then we'll also uh, move to our guest interview with Mark Ross-Smith, the CEO and founder of Status Match, to talk about airline loyalty programs. So here in the U.S., we historically describe Thanksgiving week as the busiest travel week of the year, although July 4th week has been catching up on that status. But Thanksgiving 2020 was no doubt very busy. The TSA, the Transportation Security Administration, said it handled 2.4 million passengers on the Wednesday before Thanksgiving, exceeded only by Sunday, November 27th, when an estimated 2.5 million passengers were processed, which broke the single busiest travel day since the pandemic, which was this past July 1st, 2022, like July 4th week. Uh, I saw some estimates that air travel was at 99% of where it was for Thanksgiving week of 2019, so the airports are busy, as we said. Airplanes were crowded, as we said. But Ben, uh, how do you think the industry did overall? I think they did pretty well, Chris. You know, after a last year of not enough people and all sorts of operational mess ups, some of which caused airlines to blame air traffic control and vice versa, even got Secretary Buttigieg of the DOT involved in saying, hey, let's make this better for everyone. My sense is that this Thanksgiving actually has worked pretty well. The rate of cancellations and the rate of significantly delayed flights from what we've seen up to now isn't meaningfully different than what it's been during a non-holiday week. So to handle all the people you just talked about over this very, very busy Thanksgiving holiday suggests to me that 
the industry is sort of back on track. It's also really exciting that air travel is at 99% or basically back to where it was pre-pandemic for this busy weekend. You know, one thing I've been wondering, Chris, is whether the change in work at home and the change in the way people think about their time with blended travel and leisure travel, as, as we've talked about, whether that is changing the Thanksgiving week travel patterns at all, allowing people to maybe leave earlier than they otherwise would have if they went into an office Monday, Tuesday, or Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. And so maybe we're getting the volume of the holiday that we got before the pandemic, but it's possible it was spread out over a little bigger time frame, even if it's just a couple of days, that could have made a big difference in terms of how the industry could handle it. So I don't know if that's true, but when we're able to look back on the weekend and look at the stats of what the volumes were each day of the week, we might figure out whether there's some change happening there too. Yeah, we need to watch that. Um, As for Thanksgiving week, you know, it was kind of quaint or maybe nostalgic that the only issue was weather, um, not staffing, not ATC, like you said, but it was just weather delays and weather-related cancellations, which are apt to happen, you know, into the fall like we are now. Lots of rain here in the Texas area. I know there were delays at Houston and, and Dallas uh, on Saturday of Thanksgiving week. And I saw some delays out of Chicago. So there was weather and we can't stop that. But I guess it's a good thing, like you said, that that was the cause of the delays and not some of the other things that have been plaguing the industry um, these last uh, six, eight, ten months. Then there's another airport ranking out. This one by the Wall Street Journal. In a battle of the coast, the West Coast winds in this case, San Francisco was rated the best large airport, followed by Atlanta and Minneapolis-St. Paul. And then Sacramento was the best medium-sized airport, followed by San Diego and San Jose, so a California trifecta there. At the bottom of the list, Newark was the worst large airport, and New York LaGuardia was the worst medium-sized airport. I see a trend here. The rankings are a combination of factors anchored by on-time reliability, convenience, and passenger amenities. So, Ben, give us your two cents here. You know, I've not been to San Francisco in a while, but I saw this list. I have been to Newark and have to say that I kind of understand this ranking for Newark. And LaGuardia, I've been to quite a bit. And it's unfortunate that that airport is ranked the worst medium size, given all the work that's going into that airport. And my guess is, as Delta finishes its build out, it's going to end up being sort of a better place and maybe more reliable of things. But it has been under construction for quite a long time. Now, that said, the way these rankings work always sort of rate some things more than others. So if it's based only on just operational efficiency, it's not surprising to me that the very busy and heavily congested airspace around the Northeast is always going to score much worse than airports in the Midwest and the West Coast. Yeah, like you, Ben, it's been years since I've flown into San Francisco. You know, what I think about an airport ranking system and on-time reliability is a key factor. I was very surprised about San Francisco because they have been plagued for years and years and years with fog and other weather delays. They've had a a good run where the weather has been pretty cooperative since kind of the post-pandemic era. But some of this, you know, was consistent with, you know, we talked about the J.D. Power rankings in Atlanta and Minneapolis, and some of these airports scored well there as well. But, you know, all airports aren't created equal. And so I, I guess you can lay out a grid and you can come up with some objective measurements, but 
Uh, there are some factors you can't control and then some that airports can control. You know, some of these are also the very costly airports uh, for passengers in the context of the cost to get to an airport. Uh, and how is that factor into, quote, the convenience? So anyway, the list is out. Some airports are going to brag about it. And some airports are going to dispute it and kind of kick the can down the road to next year's rankings. But everybody has their favorite airport and their least favorite airport. And I'm sure it's somewhere on this list. That's right. And if you win one of these rankings or do well, why not market it, right? When we get to the shout outs this week, Chris, I'm going to refer to yet another ranking. So we'll see when we get there. Okay. Well, listeners, if you're in the air transport business, you need to know the name Aerodata. For three decades, Aerodata has helped airlines get more from their operations with its aircraft performance, weight and balance, and load planning tools and more. Visit aerodata.co to learn more and see how the Aerodata team can make a difference for your air carrier's operations. And this week's show is also brought to you by Pratt & Whitney, a world leader in aircraft engines, helicopter engines, and auxiliary power units. The Pratt & Whitney GTF engine is delivering industry-leading sustainability, mature dispatch reliability, and world-class operating costs. Now with the GTF Advantage engine for the Airbus A320neo family, the best is getting even better. Learn more at pwgtf.com slash advantage. Now, Chris, I've got to ask your reaction to a news item involving two of your former employers, American Airlines and Sabre. Same topic we've discussed before, their history of litigation. Now American is suing Sabre to recover the attorney fees for over 11 years of litigation. What do you think of this, Chris? Oh, man. I'm trying to choose my words carefully here. I would like to see these two parties in Judge Judy's courtroom and have, have her render a, a decision. You know, I, I think they just need to stop. That's my personal opinion. They just need to stop this back and forth. You know, no one has no one has come out the winner. You know, American got a favorable decision, and the jury awarded them a dollar this past spring for for damages. So, you know, as we talked about at the time. The jury said, oh, maybe there's something fishy going on with regard to antitrust behavior, but no one was really harmed. And so now their law firm of O'Melveny and Myers is back at it with more litigation to recover the fees that O'Melveny charged American. So I, I, I think everyone's just tired of this. That's, that's my opinion. Everyone but the attorneys, Chris. Yes. Well, there you go. <laughs> And to our sponsors at Sidley Austin, I know you're not a part of this litigation, not trying to trash lawyers, lots of lawyers as friends, but I think enough is enough here. Well, we'll be right back to talk loyalty programs with Mark Ross Smith. And that interview is brought to you with the support of Seabury Securities, a Seabury Capital Group company that boasts a 25-year track record of advising aviation clients around the world. Their award-winning and widely respected team has superior industry knowledge as well as an unmatched depth of relationships with decision makers in industry, finance, and government. Explore their global reach and scale at seaburysecurities.com. Promotional consideration by thearchive.net, the hub of the history of commercial aviation. Thearchive.net is now boarding. This portion of Airlines Confidential is sponsored in part by Sidley Austin. From the ramp to the boardroom, the destination law firm for leading airlines and aviation companies transforming the skies. Welcome back to Airlines Confidential. We're pleased to have as our guest this week, Mark Ross Smith, who is the founder and CEO of StatusMatch.com. We're going to talk about loyalty with Mark. And Mark, it's early where you are in Malaysia. So thanks for joining us. Welcome to Airlines Confidential. Hey guys, great to be here. It is very early, but uh, I do have a couple of coffees in hand, so I think we'll have a fun conversation today. Great. Well, we always start off by having our guests give a quick self-introduction and also tell us about your expertise in aviation and travel and what Status Match is. Sure. Yeah. So currently, 
me and a couple of other uh, former airline executives uh, in the middle of the pandemic, we created statusmatch.com uh, as our way to, you know, the airline, a couple of years ago, the airlines were a bit of a mess. Uh, so we thought, you know, what could we create that could help the airline industry? Because loosely the logic was if we could, you know, shine a bit of a light in, in the loyalty corner of the world, and if we can help the airlines recover faster, accelerate that recovery, that would in turn help us in our careers because, you know, we're we're airline guys, we're committed to the travel industry. So loosely, that's kind of where I was thinking. But this all started really in about uh, 2013 or so, where um, I was living in Australia at the time. I just sold a company I'd worked on for seven years. It was a social network in the telco industry. So after that, I, I moved to to Hong Kong at the time, and I'd um, hit up uh, Cathay Pacific there, obviously the biggest airline, and I asked them for a status match. Um, previous I'd had top status with one of the big Australian airlines. Actually, it was one of the VIP status tiers, flying a lot for business, spending, gosh, how so much money on flights. And so I, I hit up Cathay for a status match and they, they said no. Um, actually, they offered me silver status, which is a bit of an insult. Uh, and I thought, well, that's a bit odd. Why, why are airlines, why, why wouldn't they want me as a customer? And that sort of kickstarted the whole journey into understanding customer acquisition for airlines, high-value customer acquisitions, what airlines were currently doing, what they weren't doing. And, you know, after that, I, I you know, I had not worked for an airline at that point at all. I was just a, a frequent flyer, you know, 100 or so flights a year, a lot of business first-class travel as part of business. And so, you know, I just sold my business. I was unemployed basically at that point. I thought, what am I going to do next? I want cheap flights. I need, to, <laughs> I need to go work for an airline. So, you know, I started attending a lot of industry events, all the aviation events, all the loyalty events, just as education really, because like there's no university to learn about airline loyalty. There's a lot of places you can learn about airline management, not not specifically loyalty. So I went to a bunch of these events and I, I realized pretty quickly, I thought, hang on, I, I feel I know a lot of this. And that was because, because I'd been a customer of airlines for so long, you know, you kind of see all the intricacies, all how things work. And, and to a large degree, a lot of frequent flyers actually understand more about the airline and how things work, uh, at least from a customer perspective, than a lot of people that work at the airlines. So that really opened my eyes. But that's really where it sort of status match started from there. Obviously, I then ended up joining Malaysia Airlines and running their loyalty program, doing extremely well. It made a lot of money for the airline, <laughs> basically treating the loyalty program as a startup. Because, you know, I wasn't an airline guy. I was a startup guy. I was a tech guy. And treating it like a startup, I think it was really good for the airline, really good for members, you know, creating the campaigns, changing the program slightly in ways that benefit uh, customers, th- in ways that customers would pay more for things that actually ultimately benefit the airline. So I had a lot of fun there. And then obviously, you know, pandemic hit, started Status Match. And, you know, today we're working with uh, six airlines, six major brands around the world on high value customer acquisition and you know as sort of we come to the you know the what I'll call the close of the pandemic you know people have had their early status extended for the last two or three years for free for most airlines hotels cruise lines and that's all sort of coming to an end where airlines are looking to downgrade people for the first time and obviously that represents a pretty big opportunity for our business and for other airlines out there looking to to give a lifeline to some of these people that might be losing status with their the main airline. That's a terrific background, Mark. Let's start with a very basic question. Loyalty programs are used in lots of industries, but airlines seem to have the most robust programs out there and ones that people care about the most. Why do you think that is? Well, obviously, airline programs are sexy, yeah? Think about it. They're selling something that's highly aspirational. This, this is We'll talk about most premium airlines for a second. You know, they sell the dream. They sell beaches. And, you know, imagine yourself sitting on the beach in, you know, 100 degree heat and, you know, drinking a cocktail kind of thing. They sell that dream. They sell the aspiration of something that you may not otherwise buy, you know, use your miles to fly here kind of thing. And it's the whole free flights premise. Yeah. Airline loyalty programs been around for the better part of 40 years. And, uh, you know, since late 70s, early 80s. And there's been a lot of market education since then, which means anyone that's over or under about 60 years old or so has been has sort of grown up with them, has been trained effectively by airline loyalty. 
And on top of that, they haven't really changed all that much. Like the the structure of it is more or less the same as what it sort of has been since you know mid nineties kind of thing for for most, not all programs. So with that in mind, you know loyalty programs for airlines, you know, is about driving key business objectives, right? So it's about driving premium demand, uh, a bit of revenue protection from top frequent flyers to keep, sort of keep them loyal to your airline. You know, more recently we've seen loyalty broken airline. Um, drive high margin cash flow for uh, for from sales of miles to banks and third parties and stuff like that. There's also the whole layer of the co-brand credit card part of it, which ultimately acts as a, a brand introduction to the airline to get people to fly the airline for the first time. You know, they get the credit card and like, oh, I might fly the airline again now. So, you know, over the years, airlines have sort of built this, I don't want to say a moat, but they've, they've built this really interesting business that taps on a few different areas of the core airline business to help different parts in in different ways but ultimately to to a frequent flyer to you know you and me and millions of other people out there it kind of looks the same and we it just it seems simple and so it's it's you know because of the education over the years we've sort of been able to absorb that understand it and to be frank you know retail lots of programs just don't have the same you know the same jazz the same appeal because they don't have these aspirational moments, there's there's less emotional linking between the program and your transaction, the everyday spend. So hence, airline multi programs, you know, they've obviously been making a lot more money, they get a lot more attention, hence the robustness of these programs. Mark, I want to follow up on something you were just talking about, which is, you know, during the pandemic, we saw airlines using their loyalty programs as collateral for loans and, and other capital. Uh, raising initiatives, which prove their value, obviously, but explain how a loyalty program can have a standalone value separate from the airline itself. Yeah, you're right. We've seen a heap of this in the last two years. It's really come to light. So it's the value of airline loyalty business has been around for quite a while, but, you know, airlines, you know, suddenly we got to see all these fancy SEC filings and got to see under the cover of some of the biggest, you know, airlines in the world, how they worked. So firstly, we need to understand where the, where the value in the airline loyalty business is, right? And it's really about high margin revenue, right? So in the American Airlines report, uh, SC, part of the SEC filing, I think it was, they reported, I think it was 71, 72% gross margin on selling miles, uh, which represents about 50, 52, I think, net margin on selling miles. And they're selling something which technically doesn't exist, right? You can't see it, hold it, touch it, taste it, right? It's, it's a digital currency, and, and it's high margin and they're selling billions and billions of dollars worth of these things, right? So if you think, put your airline hat on for a second, and you know, if, if an airline's selling seats and sort of getting, you know, 50 to 70% margin out of every single seat sold, they'd be making a killing, right? Um, so this is something that the loyalty program's able to do because of the value of the miles and the attractive of, of the miles underpinned by things like the network of the airline. You know, you need to fly to, a lot of destinations, you need a lot of partners, you need this whole ecosystem of loyalty that makes all that work. Fundamentally, the the market values loyalty programs like a really good marketing or tech company, which is somewhere between 30 to 40 times profit earnings ratio. Now, if you're a really, really good airline and you spent decades and decades and billions of dollars investing in great product and customer experience and da-da-da. you're like a Singapore Airlines or someone like that or Cathay Pacific, right? At best, airlines can be valued, what, six, seven, eight, ten times so on the market, which is about aligned with a, an automotive company, but not, not that great automotive company. And so, therefore, my thinking at least is, you know, if you had a dollar of profit and you can decide where it goes, do you want it to go to your loyalty company or to the airline business? it's going to be worth three to four times more sitting in the loyalty program. Even though there's less revenue overall, it's it's high margin revenue and the market's going to value that money differently to if, if the profit's sitting in the airline. What that means is, obviously in the pandemic, to your point, is airlines have been leveraging the value of these loyalty programs because this, because it's just valued differently to the airline itself. They've been leveraging it for a security to, to secure loans. I think, um, actually, this last month, you know, Spirit raised another, was it 500 million, I think, or 550 million new capital, valuing their loyalty program at, uh, what I th- want to say it was 4.2, $4.3 billion 
on about 95, 96 million uh, okay. revenue, which is somewhere about on the spot math here, 40, 40 times revenue, something like that. Um, and I think that 2022 projected revenue was about 200 million, which sort of puts it about to what, 20 times revenue valuation, which is not crazy really in the tech world, if you think about it. And so if you look at, hang on, the loyalty program is worth 4 billion and, you know, the airline itself is worth two currently, then is, does that mean the airline's worth negative 2 billion? And that's not really the case because at the end of the day, the airline needs a lot of program. A lot of program needs the airline. They need each other. They both need to exist. So you can't just delete the airline and say we're now a loads of company. Um, they absolutely need each other. So, you know, in my view, the loyalty or the marketing side of the business has virtually unlimited upside. It's li- really limited by the number of people that are interested in the brand, whereas the airline is limited by its capacity and its its revenue from selling seats and ancillary sales and stuff like that. So in my view, there's just, just more upside in Airline Loyalty, and I think that's reflected in the market. That makes a lot of sense. More with Mark Ross Smith in a moment. Airlines Confidential is sponsored in part by Sidley Austin, the destination law firm for leading airlines and aviation companies transforming the skies. From the ramp to the boardroom, Sidley provides the broadest range of legal services to clients on the most critical issues facing our industry today. Sidley combines the unmatched experience with top-tier capabilities across a vast global footprint. Visit sidley.com slash aviation for more information. Mark, Affinity credit cards are tied to many airline programs. Why do you think this has become so common? Probably because they make so much money for everyone. Um, (laughs) Funny funny that. Airlines and banks like making money. Who would have thought? Um... There's a lot of scale, obviously, with affinity co-brand credit cards. You know, they the, the biggest thing that we don't talk about is is brand introduction, right? So what you see is people that you know they 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 fly an airline, they think ours is okay, and then you know on board all the airlines are doing the credit card pitches these days, right? And the pitches, you know, get this credit card, get I make it up. 50, 60,000 miles when you get the card, and in your mind you're kind of thinking, hey, that's a free trip to blah, right? So the, the, the math kind of goes like this. You know, I pay, maybe there's no annual fee on the card. You know, I pay one, two, three, whatever, whatever the annual fee is. Let's call it 200 bucks. And I'm going to get me and my family for a free round trip to Florida, right? And in your mind, you're kind of thinking, well, it's cheaper to do that than to, to pay for the ticket, right? So people get the card. They get the card and they, you know, they start spending on it. They start spending on everyday purchases. They go to grocery they start buying things online the credit card and you know before you know it what they've done they've they've, they've kind of locked themselves into the brand right because they've got these miles from the sign up bonuses they're now earning miles from everyday spend and when it comes time for them to book their next flight next travel with their next travel wh- where do you think they're going to go they're going to go to the airline where they have the credit cards so in a lot of ways the the cards act like a i call, I call it a brand introduction you know, it's a way to get new people that don't have status yet into an airline, start building their points balance like crazy. Because if you've got a lot of points at one airline, you're much more likely to book with that airline. So you've got this whole brand introduction of people who don't have status. You've then got people that do have status and it can start accelerating miles, you know, way beyond what they could do otherwise. And obviously, all this feeds into what we are talking about before and that, you know, these are, these are high margin products, right? Similar to ancillaries and so um it is just a lot just a lot of money in the game for everyone so as airline customers are collecting loyalty points airlines and credit cards are collecting data on those customers what are they using this data for so i'll share a couple of things with you um i mean the, the what i call like a golden metric in the in airline loyalty space is is share wallet right so that is how much is each flyer flying your airline versus someone else, right? And just because someone is a, a gold or a platinum diamond member with your airline doesn't mean that you're getting, doesn't mean actually they're a good customer in terms of they might be splitting their business. They might have 
50 flights with your airline a year, but also another 50 flights with competing airline. So they're actually less loyal than, say, cousin John, who's only ever flies twice a year to go visit grandma in Texas, but that's 100% of his loyalty. So when you talk about share of wallets, about, you know, John's giving 100% of business, where, whereas his business traveler is worth more, but actually giving you less. So that's kind of the top metric. But I want to share an interesting story, actually, about how I, maybe about how are not using data. Um, just recently, I booked a flight um, on a big airline uh, for my family, and it's four of us. And so I'm a gold member of this airline, which is the mid-tier on this airline. And midway through the book, this is directly the airline website, midway through the booking process, it's trying to sell me uh, lounge access for my five-year-old. So if you want, you know, you pay an extra, I can't remember what it was, $30, $40, and, you know, you can bring the name into the into the lounge. And I'm thinking, hang on a sec, <laughs> kids are not treated as guests in lounge with this airline and this loyalty program. They basically try to sell me something as an ancillary that I get for free. And, you know, I'm not sure how much value 30, 40 bucks my five-year-old is going to get in the lounge. You know, she's, she's not quite old enough to start drinking champagne yet. So, you know, I think there's a bit of a, in terms of how they're not using data, I think, you know, if they, like, what, they could have sold me something else. Do you know what I mean? Like elite members are much more willing to spend on other stuff. You just got to sell them the right stuff, right? You can't sell them lounge access for their kids, which they already get for free, right? It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a bit of a stretch to try and sell them um, extra bags and things like that because they tem- tend to get extra baggage allowance anyway. So I think there's, if I sort of spin this around a bit, I think there's a bigger opportunity in airlines doing really simple things with the data like this, for example. You know, in airline, the marketing side, there's all things like, machine learning propensity modeling to see what people are more likely to click on and what products they're likely to buy and you know partnering with third-party data combining that to see who doesn't have your credit like there's all sorts of stuff that cool stuff that's sort of been done in the background but to be fair i think i think some of the easiest biggest revenue wins are going to be using data in small ways that impact the customer experience in a positive way Mark, one thing that's always bugged me about airline loyalty programs is that they often grant you a full year of status based on the prior year's activity. When we started our program from scratch at Spirit, we had the idea to base it on rolling 12-month activity. How do you think loyalty programs could better link current loyalty rewards to more current activity? Super interesting question. You got to start somewhere, right? Like what, I guess the question is what, what is the right model and what is the right model for each particular airline or loyalty? You know, what, what are the core business objectives you're trying to get to and how does a qualifying period, if, if we call that, maybe you want to, go somewhere totally new with that but is it is it you know calendar year is it a rolling 12 months to to your point what is the best model and i think it really depends i don't think there's a magical answer i think for a bunch of airlines and hotels and car rental you know the calendar year works perfectly fine obviously that puts a lot of people at disadvantage that have a lot of activity you know just one side of the year or the other you know not not everyone has the same kind of travel over and over and over and over and over right um so that's why a you know, the rolling years work quite well. You know, there's some airlines out there that'll give you status for two years up front when you qualify for the first time. Uh, I like that idea because it kind of, and, and then obviously reduced qualifications for that that next year, whether it's a, a year or, you know, rolling calendar year. I like that because um, it, you know, you sort of, you're in the club at that point. You get in and it's like, you can sit back a bit and go, okay, I don't have to work so damn hard to, to sort of keep there again. You know, obviously you need some some boundaries and some, some structure in these programs. You know, one of my colleagues I work with, he said he he, um, he only ever really understood uh, frequent flyer programs after he was working at a bank and that how all these banking folks would mysteriously need to have group meetings in a faraway country just after Christmas, but it had to be before New Year. And it was all about, you know, South, uh, they all had enough miles to requalify for status for the following year. Uh, and so there's, there's definitely people value elite status. You know, there's in most big airlines, somewhere 
between 30 and 40% of all ticket sales are driven by the top 5% of loyalty customers. And so these people spend more on high margin fares. They're just, they're typically your better customers. And so, you know, in some ways, do you just create a program and the earning qualifications around it? Do you you just base it off these people because these people are worth so much money to the airline, right? Or do you go chasing, you know, your infrequent, your leisure, what's the word? Bleasured out, I think is the word I've seen. Do you go chasing these people as the new type of frequent flyers? And I actually think there's a balance. I think it's both. In fact, you know what I'd really like to see? This is the first time I'm sharing this. I'd like to see a, like a choose your own adventure loyalty program, right? So it's like, here's, here's the, you know, you remember those books? I remember books as a kid, you know, sort of reading through it. And it's like, da, 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 you're reading through it. And it's like, if you want to do this, you go to page 53. If you want to do this, you go to page 46. And you kind of got to take the journey that you felt most comfortable with. And so what if loyalty programs were to do that? What if, what if you could, sacrifice miles earning it's like i don't want to earn miles on my next 10 flights instead i want double status earning right or vice versa that way you could start capturing the interest of business travelers that are less less driven by miles earning and more driven by status earning but at the same time you could incentivize it the other way and give more miles to people that just know they're never going to get the silver or the gold status right but you want to kind of lock them into the airline different way so i'd like to see more innovation in this area um innovation that ultimately i think would benefit both the airline and the passenger so mark as we wrap up let's get out of the airline business for a minute but using your expertise is there a loyalty program or a company that doesn't have a loyalty program is there something you'd love to get your hands on to help them reimagine how they tap into the loyalty of their customers I think airlines one, two, three, four, and number ten on my list. Um, after that, you know, I think I, I think automotive might be interesting because there's a lot of similarities with airline. You know, the way that that most automotive companies are valued on the market is pretty similar to a typical airline. Automotive car companies, you know, they they've got all these what we will call ancillary sales. You know, there's all add-ons for your car. There's, you know, we're starting to see. You know, was it BMW trying to sell, you know, subscriptions for heated seats in the cars now? You know, so we're seeing all, you know, upgrade and get the next version of autopilot and you pay more. So there's all these sort of digital products coming into it. If I could draw a parallel to just ancillaries and airlines, right? Again, it's, it's high margin revenue. And I think this is something that, you know, automotive manufacturers could really get into, you know, the, the high margin digital stuff and how do you do that without, pissing off the customers basically right so i think there's a, there's a lot of overlap in terms of these two industries and where they could go airlines are just more evolved in this space and they've done a pretty good job of that and you know i think with the you know the more sort of evs sort of coming into the market now um i, I think it's probably a good time for you know car companies car brands i should say it's like how do you how do you really lock people in with your brand not just for their you know their life cycle you know, they're buying a car now and another one in three years or whatever. But like, how do you, how do you keep them for, for 10 years, 20 years? How do you do that? Uh, how do you build an ecosystem around that? And I think some sort of loyalty proposition, it may not be called a loyalty program, it might be called something else, but how do you how do you create something like that and draw a lot of parallels from the airline industry that traditionally have done really well from this kind of activity? Well, as you say that too, I'm thinking like, you know, when you buy a car, lease a car, and you choose to keep going back to the dealership for the servicing, that would be a perfect time to be able to kind of accumulate points and the loyalty of the customer to want to come back for their next car at that same place too. So there's some some very natural touch points uh, for a, an automotive customer, like you said. You could be nasty in that too, in that you could offer lots of points for the first couple years you own the car and then start reducing the number of points as the car gets older to give you an incentive to come in and get a new car. <laughs> this so. is pretty nasty. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Mark, we really appreciate having you here. And like some of the innovative ideas you talk about, you know, as the world, the way it's existing or evolving post-pandemic, 
suggests there's going to be more leisure travel as a percent of total or more blended trips, pleasure, as you called it, things like that. So finding ways for these programs to be relevant to a broader group is really a good idea, I think. And you had some very good ideas in that. Thank you so much. Um, and best of luck to Status Match, too. Thanks, guys. It's been a lot of fun. Appreciate your time. We'll be right back with more Airlines Confidential in a moment. This portion of Airlines Confidential is sponsored in part by Aerodata, the leading edge in flight performance data. Visit aerodata.co. Aerodata is a Garmin company. Thanks again to Mark Ross Smith for his time on this week's show. Now it's listener question time. Please keep your questions coming via email at questions at airlinesconfidential.com or visit airlinesconfidential.com and follow the prompts to submit your comment or question. Ben, we talked a bit on last week's show about the U.S. DOT fines levied on five airlines for not issuing refunds, as well as the confusing nature of refunds and airline credit rules. Blair from Pittsburgh has written us again about her frustration with American Airlines flight credits. Hi, Ben and Chris. Following up from my comments in August, it's still next to impossible to use American Airlines travel credit due to hidden rules. This time, A will not let me use travel credit for a child fare. Same as before, no one knows the rules. Each representative gives a different answer. DOT regulations offer no protection here. Ugh. Booking a flight now takes all day. Chris, I'm sorry about this to Blair, but I'm going to have to call this a whine. And let me tell you why. When I read this complaint, I just Googled American Airlines flight credit rules. That took me to a link on the American Airlines site that in very clear print nothing hidden at all, said that the credit can only be used in the name of the person who earned the credit. Now, that may be an unfriendly rule. Customers may not like that rule, but it's not hidden. And I don't think it's surprising to me that American tries to keep it that way. So I'm not saying that I like the American rule that they're so restrictive with the flight credit, but it's not true that it's hidden. And I'm surprised they would give you different rules each time when I was able to find the rule literally in under about 10 seconds. So I think Americans stuck to their role this time. I get why you didn't like it. I get why many people wouldn't like it, but I don't think it's a hidden rule thing. So I'm going to call this one a whine. Chris, am I being too mean at holiday time? No. I mean, I when I saw this question come in, I thought the exact same thing, which is a flight credit is only generally only for the passenger involved. Many times vouchers when you're voluntarily bumped and you you offer to get off a flight and take that offer at the gate, many times those vouchers are transferable. So there's sometimes consumer confusion. And I think Blair also got caught up a bit in so many new employees, uh, especially in reservations, that they're going to sometimes unfortunately give differing up answers or wing it and they're doing their best, but that's unfair to the customer when they can't get a straight answer. So I'm, I'm with her on the frustration level, but someone should have been able just to answer her question. I've experienced it recently a couple times where I thought I had a pretty simple request, like uh, my wife and I on the same PNR and we were going to have to change travel plans. So I went to split the PNR and they just turn our reservations upside down in the context of moving us from one class of fare to another. And when we looked back on our, our AA.com apps, it was very confusing what had happened until we sorted it out. But, you know, I, again, I was a little frustrated, but then I also kind of understood that this was, I could tell this was a new agent just in our conversation. And I was, doing my best to kind of walk her through what I needed, but um, it didn't go very well. 
Chris Annie from Colorado wrote in about a Frontier Airlines naming convention. She asks, Frontier recently transformed its airport customer service department into what it now calls the airport sales and operations department. What do you make of this change? Ben, I couldn't tell from this question if Annie's a Frontier employee or a customer. So, um, and I don't know if that shades the the purpose behind the question. Look, I mean, I get, they can call the department whatever they want. Um, I wonder how many people were involved in sitting around debating the same change. Um, I, I guess one of my first reaction though is airport sales in the name of the department and. Does anybody actually buy a ticket at the airport anymore? That 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 just suggests that airport sales is a thriving part of the operation when in fact it's really about customer service and airport operations. But that being said, I thought the more interesting thing, this probably was announced after Annie wrote us, was Frontier announcing this past week that they're going to eliminate telephone customer service and rely only on chat and bots and texting to uh, respond to passenger inquiries. So they're not the first major kind of customer-facing uh, company to do this. My guess is airline customers aren't fully ready for this, but sometimes they have to be dragged kicking and screaming into the next wave of future technology. I know when kiosks were put in place and other kinds of things. Some people had some issues with that, but the combination of this airport name change with the elimination of telephone customer service, I thought was kind of an interesting combination. Ben, what did you think? I I thought it was interesting too. Now I will mention, Chris, that Frontier, like Spirit before it, does make your ticket cheaper if you buy it at the airport because they assess a fee when you buy it online that the only way to avoid that fee is to buy the ticket from the airport. So it's possible that Frontier does see more sales at the airport from that. If someone's really trying to save a little more on their ticket, they might have more of that there. I don't think that had anything to do with the change in the name of the department, however. <laughs> but Ben, I got to ask you, like, what's, it shows my ignorance because I haven't flown Frontier or Spirit um, in a very long time, but what's the extra fee to buy online versus at the airport? Why would somebody drive to the airport and incur the cost of parking and the extra hour to get to and from an airport. Airports are not like down the street. Who, who really does that? Well, you know, I'm sure many of our listeners might know the exact answer to that. Last time I looked, I think Spirit called this the passenger usage charge, which wasn't a particularly helpful name. And you can blame me for part of that because it came about <laughs> when I was there. But at the time, that I think was $7.95 a person assessed for a web or other way to buy a ticket. And you could save that fee, which according to the DOT rules, if it's required to buy, it has to be in the advertised fare. But if it's not required, it doesn't have to be. So creating that loophole, if you will, that you can avoid the fee by buying at the airport allows airlines like Spirit and Frontier to not include that fee in the advertised fare. I don't think a lot of people do it, but if you want to save the most money, you do. And so my guess is just is that a bigger percentage of customers at Spirit or Frontier buy at the airport than every other airline because of that. Okay. Well, I stand by my comment that I don't know who would want to do that, but I guess somebody does. <laughs> well, if I can tell you one of the funnier stories when I worked at Spirit that might uh, open your mind a bit on this, Chris, there was a customer 
who got arrested at the Fort Lauderdale airport because she was parked in a no parking area in front of the terminal. And apparently the local police had asked her to move multiple times and she was frantically sort of working at her laptop and didn't move. And ultimately they ticketed her and they asked her why she didn't move. And she said, well, if I check my bag online, it's $6 cheaper than if I go to the ticket counter. So I was trying to get my bag checked. And so that's the sort of person that would go to the airport to save the seven ninety five, Chris. I'm not going to say anything else. <laughs> I'm just not going to. Let's squeeze in one more question. Willard from Rhode Island wants to know our favorite airline jokes. I'm going to go first. What did the football player say to the flight attendant, Ben? Uh, I don't know. What did the football player say to the flight attendant? Put me in, coach. <laughs> Well, mine is going to be, I asked the flight attendant if I could be moved because of the crying baby next to me, but apparently you can't do that if it's your baby. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. It's really time to go after all that. Um, My original shutdown shout out was going to be to SAS Airlines, which is flying the world's longest narrowbody flight right now. 4,074 miles from Copenhagen to Washington, Dallas. But my real shout out has got to be the Michigan Wolverines for beating the pants off of the Ohio State Buckeyes last weekend. Big win for the, for the blue. Very excited. And there is an aviation connection because that's cool. Turns out really great aeronautical engineers. So go blue. And uh, you know who I'm rooting for here. Two good shout outs there, Chris. Well, my shout out, as I mentioned earlier, is to another ranking. And this is to the Star Alliance for winning Skytrack's rating of the best alliance. Now, there are basically three big alliances out there, as we all know. And we also all know that they try to do largely the same thing. And depending on where you're going and where you're starting, and going to one alliance might make one alliance might make more sense than another. But I was impressed with Skytrack's methodology, and they looked at a whole range of things that people expect from the alliance. Something as basic as connecting your bag when you're flying partner airlines, and something even a little more subtle that the customer knows which ticket counter to go check into when they arrive in an airport. And with all those things they looked at, they felt that Star just did this better than Sky Team or One World. And so my guess is that Star has spent more time on these things. So my shout out goes to Star for making it even a little bit easier for customers who are flying around the world on different airlines to just understand what's going on. Well, with that, we're going to shut this down. Thanksgiving's behind us. On to the holiday rush. Everybody be good out there, and thanks for listening. And thanks again to Mark Ross Smith for some great insights on loyalty, and we hope to see you all next week on Airlines Confidential. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.